The Athletic. end of another series of Bring Back V10s is fast approaching, but as always, we've been inundated with so many questions from our audience that we can't possibly end it just yet. During Series 5, we've received more questions from our listeners than ever before, so a massive thank you to everyone who sent in at least one using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com, or by including a question in a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for the first of our two-part finale are Ed Straw and Matt Beer, who I can reveal are the only people at the moment who have seen our list of episodes for Series 6. But Matt, looking beyond that honour and knowing my personal dislike for spoilers, let's focus on today's episode. As usual, the traditional opening question is tweaked a little for the end of the series. So which question today are you most looking forward to from our list? The fact that I've got at least two chances to be quite negative about <laughs> Nigel Mansell. Short and sharp. Um, and yeah, I, I think you, your your name came to mind when uh, when I saw those Mansell opportunities. But we'll try and balance it out if we can. But Ed, what about you? It's probably not Mansell for you. What back of the grid nonsense has caught your eye? Well, Matt saying that does make me think I've got the chance to be the counterbalance and bring some sanity to the, the Nigel Mansell debate. But there is a question about a particular bring back V10's favourite, or well, one of my favourites anyway, that also gives me an excuse to touch on some back marker teams, Colony, AGS, that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to that one. See if you can spot it. I think we'll be able to spot it just fine. And uh, that's as close as we get into a spoiler as well. I mentioned earlier that people have been submitting questions via Apple Podcast Reviews and we've recently been absolutely flooded with reviews as people are working their way through Series 5. So thank you so much. We'll do a a monster list of shout-outs now to show our appreciation for all of you showing your love for Bring Back V10s, including those of you emailing us to say you listen on different platforms but still think we're worth five stars. So here we go. Thank you to Prasad VJ, Consolo, Muktena, Matt Firth, Joel, Joel Dingle, who gave us eight stars via email, Joe Collinge, Matt Baker, uh, Marshall Tremblay, who said Bring Back V10s is worth 10 stars. You are far too kind. As we've had so many questions, we'll be releasing a special episode exclusively for the Race Members Club, where our members will get their own chance to submit questions. It's our way of saying thank you for your support by offering you something extra and massively increasing the odds of your questions being answered, given how many we have to sort through now. We will leave that window open for a bit longer after the series finishes, so sign up um, at the-race.com forward slash members club if you want to join that, and keep an eye on your inbox for your chance to submit questions if you are part of the club. That's enough from me, though. Let's hand over the controls to you and start ploughing through your questions. Ed, you can tackle the first one. And we've got a bit of a a scene setter from Stephen Gates. Stephen says, Mercedes-Benz decide to enter F1 as a full works effort for 1993 and enforce their contract with Michael Schumacher, seeing him lead their return to Grand Prix racing. Benetton take advantage of Nigel Mansell's collapsed contract talks with Williams, with, with sponsor Camel footing his financial demands, and Nigel signing a two-year deal. How does Nigel fare for Benetton in 1993, and more importantly, the following year, when his car is the class of the field? That's a fun alternative history question. Obviously, 
Benetton was a, a team on the up at the time. No doubt Mansa would have been strong in 93. The B193 was a decent car. Schumacher won in it at Estoril, finished fourth in the championship, always on the podium when he finished. So Mansell, I imagine, would have had a, a similar season. But there was a bigger picture there as well because it was still part of the preparation phase building up to being that title-winning force in, in 94. And I think good as the car was, I don't think there was any way of being a title threat in, in that car. So we'll say similar sort of season, but there could have been some fun Senna and Prost battles for Mansell that year, uh, had he been in the Benetton. And then 94, again, Mansell surely will be winning races and he would be in the title fight. I think the big question for me though, is the disruption in the team's evolution. I spoke to Pat Simmons at length about this period at Benetton. Firstly, he felt Schumacher was already a championship level driver in 93, but the team wasn't quite there. And I think I'd 100% agree with that. So that's one of the reasons for my answer on what Mansell would have done in 93. But there was this great connection between Schumacher and Benetton. They grew together and plugging in any different driver, Mansell or anyone else, would have changed that. Mansell obviously had a different way of working, different character, ready-made champion, but at the other end of his career. So the question for me there is whether the shift in dynamic between that developing team and young driver on a journey to developing team and established megastar would have shifted things. It's not Mansell-specific even, although obviously Mansell brings certain approaches and, and personality traits, but Schumacher and Benetton fed off each other. So I suspect, given that Benetton was well and truly underway, had they lost Schumacher, they'd certainly have been strong in 94. Mansell would have won races. Would he won the championship? Who knows? It was such a fractious season, wasn't it? And it could have changed so many things about the way that went. Certainly been in the fight, though, and perfectly capable of winning a championship, I think, in 94 with continuity of his F1 career. I just can't see him staying at the team till 94. I'd be taking a bet on how early in 93 it was all going to horrendous, miserable, sulky tears and uh, fall out and, and end in a fractious way. That's, that's, my, that's my Mansell sceptic answer. I think he'd last longer than he did at McLaren, but not, um, not the full season. Um, other than that, slightly more seriously, although that is also my genuine opinion, um, I totally agree with Ed's thing about the trajectory of Schumacher and Benetton. Um, Mansell would have done better than PK did, someone else slotting in at, the end, at Benetton at the end of a career, um, and I don't think PK did badly at all when he was there in, uh, in 1991, but Mansell would have been an upgrade on that. But the whole energy about Benetton was Schumacher and the people around him rising together and, like Ed says, feeding off each other. So that team needed an emerging superstar to make its next step, not a uh, grumpy superstar who was about to start his way down. Part one of Matt Beer versus Nigel Mansell. There, it, as Ed said, such a hard question to answer. So many variables in 94 that it's very, very hard to answer that specifically. But I guess if if you look at it at its most basic level, if you plonk a driver as fast as Nigel Mansell into a car as good as the 1994 Benetton, not getting into all the suspicions about that car, he's going to win a bunch of races. And if, and if he's up against Damon Hill and not Ayrton Senna, he probably does get the job done, I think. But uh, yeah, an incredibly layered question Stephen's given us there to kick the episode off. Our next question is from Chris United 93 who always sends in enough questions for a full episode. So the challenge is always to pick the best one each time. In fact, Chris, let us know if you're part of the Race Members Club because if you are, maybe we can dedicate an entire episode to your questions between series. Matt, you can have the first swing at this. Chris asks, were there any fractious teammate partnerships that never happened in this era that you guys would have loved to have seen? 
And Chris says, I always think of a Jacques Villeneuve and Ralph Schumacher partnership at Williams in 99 as an entertaining possibility. The trouble with the Villeneuve ones of these is they always end up a little bit sad. It's like I thought him and Button would be great fun. But as someone who, while not having your fondness for Villeneuve, Glenn, was certainly a Villeneuve fan, I just found the end of that a little bit depressing. Um, I... Fractious my, Alonso is my favourite Fractious teammate possibility basically and he actually ended up teamed with most of the people you'd ever want to see him teamed with but not Michael <laughs> Schumacher I would love to have seen Alonso versus Schumacher in the same team whether that was Ferrari or a, a weird Endstone reunion for Schumacher I think that would have been so disruptive and messy and ultra competitive it would have um, blown away even what we saw with Alonso versus Hamilton um, to, I'm going to sneak in a second half answer that I'm not going to waste too much time justifying. Schumacher and Alacy together could have been hilarious given how Alacy regarded their little car swap at the end of 95 going into 96 and um, the expectations that Alacy could pick up at Benetton where Schumacher left off. And them being the same team, knowing what the outcome would have been and how Alacy would have handled that emotionally just sounds like a recipe for loads of fun. But I do imagine there might be some wet races where Alacy was unfathomably a second and a half faster than Schumacher for reasons no one really worked out at the time. Um, that ended up being two long answers, didn't it? Sorry, Ed's turn. Well, I'll go short. My mind just let uh, Montoya and Villeneuve, I guess, that would have happened. Williams had Villeneuve stayed on just because they're two characters, two great drivers, and... All sorts of interesting things could have gone on in that team. So I think that would have been the, the partnership that probably could have created the greatest chance for just aggravation and storylines. Yeah, that's that's a brilliant answer. And that, that would have been the one I went for as well. Two great drivers, great characters, hard chargers. I was a big fan of both. I would have loved to have seen that. To pick up on what Matt said about the Button partnership, I was delighted when Button and uh, Villeneuve ended up side by side. So I thought, oh, I like both of these drivers. This will be great. And then... Jack turned it into a war almost immediately and I kind of, out of loyalty, had to dislike Jensen Button, which wasn't, wasn't, uh, was too great. And as for a Lacey Schumacher, I'd, Schumacher would have destroyed John Lacey. Um, and as Matt said, that would have been a spectacular uh, blow up in the end. Next up, we've got a question from Clay Halford. Uh, Clay asks, what was the reasoning behind the number convention changing on the cars in 1996? And he says, do we prefer traditional numbers a la Ferrari 27, Tyrrell 3-4, etc., or the latest systems? Ed, I will send this one to you. And just to add some background for anyone who doesn't know immediately what we're talking about. In 1996, F1 switched from the teams having relatively consistent numbers every season on the cars to basing each team's numbers on their Constructors' Championship position from the previous year. And we had that system until personalised driver numbers came in for 2014. So Ed, the question, if you can answer it, is what was the reasoning behind the change and do you have a, a preferred system? Yeah, I, I did enjoy that gloriously esoteric numbering system because it came in for 1974 to create some order because it was all chaos behind that. It was basically race numbers. So it changed uh, week by week, basically, what number you carried and they switched it to the, the championship order from 73, so Lotus 1 and 2, and the rest followed in order. And then there was this great sort of slow shuffle over time because teams kind of had permanent numbers, but there was this regular change of who had 1 and 2. But that meant there wasn't kind of a home number for everyone. Lotus never had kind of a, a ten, a 9 and 10, say, as, a, as their base number. So there was this ongoing shuffle of teams changing places, which I quite liked. So Ferrari, for example, we think of 27 and 28. They didn't get to that until 81 when they swapped with Williams because Alan Jones won the World Championship in 1980. 
Yeah, and obviously there are a few numbers that were really associated. Tyrrell, three and four. Brabham, seven and eight, always leaps to mind. Some of them uh, less so. The reason it changed was just to tidy things up and give a bit of value to the higher numbers. So it kind of extended the idea that one and two were for the team that had the world champions. So if you were number five and six, you were probably quite a good team, not just one that happened to have that through history. Brabham's a good example. They were seven and eight when they were fairly uncompetitive at, at, at times. Now... In terms of whether I like it, if you were to suggest that system, it's not entirely logical because it's like 90% of the way there to permanent team numbers, but it's not quite because of those those ongoing changes. But I quite like the weirdness of that. And just because of my age, it's what I grew up with. I do enjoy that. But I do actually think that that, that switch in 96 to, to honour championship position was quite a nice way of, of doing it. So... Yeah, I think enjoy the fact it happened, but it's difficult to make a coherent case for the the slightly bizarre system that existed for twenty years. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, I I actually I quite liked the uh, the order and uh, the, the sense of consistency that came with the change from ninety six to to twenty thirteen. I think the problem was that once the teams didn't have any connection to the numbers, they just kept getting smaller and smaller on the cars. So part of the reason I think they made the change was that there was no, there was no connection at all, but I'm always, always fond of that, of that system. And, uh, for newer facts, to, to give you an idea, if we still had that system today, uh, Red Bull would have one and two because Max Verstappen's the world champion, but then Mercedes would have three and four Ferrari, five and six McLaren, seven and eight Alpine, nine and 10, 11 and 12 for Alpha Tauri. They didn't use 13, so it would have been 14 and 15 for Aston Martin. Uh, 16, 17 for Williams. 18, 19 for Alfa Romeo. And 20 and 21 for Haas. Matt Lloyd is next with a question that seems well up our Matt's street. So Matt Lloyd asks, why isn't Montoya's career celebrated a lot more than it is? His results over multi-disciplines show how incredibly talented he is. He may not have won the F1 championship during the Ferrari-Schumacher era, but he did win big races like Monaco, Silverstone and Monza. He also came so close to winning the championship in 2003. So Matt, I said that was up your street. Um, like me, you you love a bit of, of Juan Pablo Montoya. So do you think that his career is perhaps underappreciated? No, sadly, I think it's, it's judged exactly <laughs> right. And the thing is, those of us who were living through it with such excitement at the time, it was just such a disappointment in the end. Not even the way it, not even the way it departed mid-season, but the whole McLaren thing being so, so underwhelming. You know, I, I was a massive Montoya fan from Formula 3000 onwards from him lapping the field, okay, in slightly weird circumstances in, in the street race in Poe. His amazing achievements in Kart, Champ Car, and then the the awesome first three seasons at Williams. But like uh, like Matt, who asked the question, said it was big race wins, and it was not quite a championship. And this this man had so much car control and so much talent and so much imagination. He could you know he could see moves that nobody else would even dare attempt. Those were great highlights, but that was what Montoya's career was in F1, at least a series of snapshots and great incidents to get incredibly excited about and all this potential. But, you know, it was never really actually getting channeled in the right way. He would never put the full effort in to understand how to be quick across a full season in a, in a variety with a variety of setup choices, how to get the best out of a good car in the way Ralph Schumacher was at Williams, rather than just uh, ragging a compromised car to places that, uh, people with lesser car control couldn't it it was so sad to see him 
decline like that. I think the the way Raikkonen showed him up at McLaren was probably the most disappointing thing for a, a lifelong Montoya fan. And I think that because that's how his career ended and because the NASCAR thing didn't work out particularly well afterwards. I know he didn't have the greatest machinery at Ganassi, but if he'd gone to NASCAR and then conquered all the ovals and won a championship there, we'd be able to go, okay, you are the greatest multidisciplinary um, racer of this era. That was an inspired move to leave boring F1 and go somewhere you could express yourself. But no, he just you know, midfielded around for the next 10 years with, with a couple of wins on, on the side and, and, a, and a comedy crash with a track cleaning vehicle and a fireball. So, yeah, in in summary, his career was a bunch of amazing episodes that never added up into a compelling series. And that's why, as much as it pains me to say it, I don't think he's underappreciated. I think history judges him just right as a huge wasted talent. He was a driver a bit out of time, wasn't he? And quite what he was doing joining McLaren, the Montoya-McLaren alliance was never really going to work. He needed to be staying with a team like Williams. Might not have been the most competitive (laughs) for those following years after he left, but he was an old school driver, wasn't he? Might have been a good fit for Red Bull if they'd been a bit more competitive early uh, in their time. Yeah, but yeah, Montoya and McLaren, we all said at the time that doesn't fit. And I think Ron Dennis was very, oh, South Americans, Ayrton Senna, I know what I'm doing. And, uh, and then Montoya fell off a motorbike very early on and that kind of set the scene. Sorry, hurt his arm playing tennis. Uh, right, we've had a question that was right up Matt's street. So now we've got one that's definitely Ed territory. In fact, Ed, you were named in the question. So, Ed, Thomas Mason asks, how good was Gabrielli Tarquini in F1? Uh, he was, And Thomas says he was inevitably let down by driving backmarker cars until the one-off with Tyrrell in 1995. Fun fact, that got him in the PS1 F1 game based on that series. Could Tarquini have delivered drives like he did in touring cars? Yeah, very perceptive to work out. This is the sort of question that I would uh, be taking. Don't know how you got that idea. But yeah, Tarquini certainly <laughs> was a good performer in F1. One of the reasons I particularly enjoy his career is beyond my love of Bat Marcus was that the results were so poor and he has records that are completely unfair, if you like, for a driver of his quality. He's got the most failures to pre-qualify of anyone with 25. That's more even than Roberto Moreno. And he failed to qualify a further 15 times. So... Generally, well, always pretty much in poor equipment. So it's Colonia, AGS, Von Metal, bookended by one-offs with a seller and, and Tyrrell. And that Tyrrell was probably the best car he got in. And we talked about that in season three, episode two. He didn't finish particularly well in the race because he lost a load of time through no fault of his own. Good driver in F1. Undoubtedly capable of consistent results and, and scoring points. And if you look at that little spell in AGS early in 89, before the team started to fall apart, he had some really impressive drives he had that sixth place in Mexico he was running in the points ran as high as fifth at Monaco I think he was running six when he had I think it was an electrical problem that put him out relatively late on running pretty well in uh, in the USA as well spun off from a decent position early on in, in Canada so showed that he could run up in the top 10 and no question in a, in a point scoring car he's a point scoring driver I'm not going to say he was a, a lost world champion and that's kind of key to this question because we're saying could he have scaled the heights he did in touring cars well he won the BTCC when it was in his manufacturer peak, de facto world championship. You could say he won the European World Touring Car Crowns and the World Touring Car Cup as recently as 2018. So he's had a quarter of a century of being a star in tin tops and was still winning races right at the end of his career. Absolutely astonishing. So I don't see him quite achieving that in Formula One. But yeah, he would have been a very, very good, capable driver, probably capable of winning some races in, in decent machinery. But I don't see him... You know, he's not a lost center, let's let's put it that way, but not many are. 
the one thing that I would add is that he did sort of win an F1 race, not in the conventional sense, but in 1991, he won the Bologna Motor Show's indoor trophy, beating Lotus driver Johnny Herbert in the final. So he was an F1 winner in a way, and what appropriate for him that it was that particular event that got his, his slightly strange victory. But yeah, a, a great servant to backmarket teams, a fun career. He seemed to enjoy it. And yeah, a, a very good driver who, who could have done more. Ed, does that mean that you are still going to do that Bologna Motor Show indoor sprint feature that we discussed last year? Because I think that's something the Bring Back V10's listeners would absolutely love. So let's get you committing to it for like a Christmas feature this year on air. Yeah, it's got to be done uh, eventually because it's just a, a great story and there's some great uh, great cars turning up there, including a car that never made it in F1. Well, there you go. Okay, so listeners, Christmas morning, end of 2022 on the race, that's going to be our lead thing. Shark Hello was one of the people who sent in a question via a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And this is a, another hypothetical and a chance for Matt to uh, express his true love and true feelings for Nigel Mansell. So, Matt, the question is, if Mansell was still at McLaren during 1995, could he have won at Monza? And uh, the logic is that David Coulthard uh, stacked on the formation lap from pole. Uh, Hill and Schumacher collided again. Alacy and Berger retired from the lead. Both McLarens made it to the end. So Shark Hello says, yes, he could have won. What do you think, Matt? No, really. If, if Mika Hakkinen Shock. finished that race 17 seconds behind actual winner Johnny Herbert, there is no way I can see Mansell 17 seconds up the road from Hakkinen in that McLaren. Um, I think he'd been on the podium behind Hakkinen. Um, he'd have done better than Mark Blundell did in the second car, and Blundell was fourth behind Frentzen Sauber. Uh, okay, obviously, as... As we've alluded to, I'm not a Nigel Mansell fan. I'm the opposite of a Nigel Mansell fan. Um, so any Mansell-related answers are kind of coloured by venom when I get going. But be, again, being logical, that car didn't suit Mansell's style at all. Had he stayed, I can't see a situation in which it really really would have been something he properly got on top of. Not to the extent Hakkinen was. I think he would have done, you know, he was a, he was a world champion driver. He'd have got somewhere with it. But Hakkinen, at that point in his career, was so quick and in tune with the team, could get the car working. So, yeah, I, even in the, in the few minutes when Mansell's McLaren career seemed to be going okay, he was still half a second off Hakkinen. So, no, I, I, I don't see it, sadly. Um, as a side, side point, absolutely love that race. Proper 1995 messy classic. Yep, yep. Uh, I, agree, I agree with all of that. I, I can't see... Even if Mansell settled at McLaren, I'm not sure he could have been ahead of Hakkinen and made up the gap to Herbert. But let's move back into backmarker chat because I'm not for one moment accepting that Nigel Mansell was a backmarker, even in a McLaren. Uh, Ed, Andrew Jones says, Simtech seemed to often get lumped into the same conversation as 40 and Pacific. But I remember in 1995, Jos Verstappen in a beautiful car pulling off some giant killing acts with the team before it eventually folded. Is this just rose-tinted spectacles? I'd love to hear more on how good or bad the team was and how everything fell apart so quickly after showing such promise in those early months of 1995. So, Ed, Simtech didn't stick around for very long in 95. Um, you've done a video where they were included as one of the teams that um, died during the season on our YouTube channel, but... What's your what's your personal assessment of Simtech? And does Andrew have a point that perhaps they shouldn't be lumped in with 40 and Pacific? I think it's kind of logical they're lumped in with them because those were all teams that tried and failed to make it in F1. They were kind of at the back end of that raft of 
influx of teams that we talked about in the late 80s and early 90s. And it was getting really, really difficult by then. But Pacific and Forty were both teams that had had some success in single-seater races, racing. So actually, they had a much more illustrious record in racing than, than Simtech did because that was more of a, a car design company. But Nick Worth had been trying to get involved in Formula One for quite a while. That BMW design project involvement with Andrea Moda, the Bravo F1 team. So that first Simtech kind of grew out of, of all of those projects. It was funny because what they did early in 95, and it was Argentina really that stands out, Verstappen qualified 14th uh, in the wet, did run six briefly, had a, a gearbox failure in the end that stands out. But the team really was already done for by, by that point because it was so low on money, so heavily in debt. It struggled all the way through 94. The, the tragic death of Ratzenberger in Imola obviously didn't help as well. That was a, a huge blow and that did have financial implications as well. So they were already on the, on the ropes. Nick Worth was trying to put together a sponsorship deal. He thought he had a sponsor that proved to be somewhat spurious. And actually, when they pulled out after Monaco, they said it was down to the fact that they'd signed a title sponsor and it all, or a big major sponsor, and it all fell apart. And MTV had scaled back their involvement in all sorts. So the money simply wasn't there. But the, the 95 car was a tidy car. The really funny thing was with it, they did quite a sensible thing in that they got Verstappen in as a driver after his struggles in his first season with Benetton, but still a driver with a, a bright future. Got a Benetton gearbox as well. So they're using the proven gearbox technology from Benetton. And then what kept going wrong early in the season, the gearbox kept failing, which is a very, very odd thing to go wrong. But I think that probably indicates there was something not quite right within the way the team was working as well. I don't really see Simtech, even with sort of stable low-end money, doing anything particularly special. I think there was a team. It was a team that had a bit about it. There were some interesting ideas, but also if you look at Nick Worth's F1 record thereafter, it is quite patchy. So I'm not sure Simtech is a great lost team, but at the same time, it's also a team that went through a hell of a time in its year and a bit in F1. So it was made much much harder for it. And it was nice they did have that, in particular Argentina weekend. Qualified recently as well in Barcelona for Stappen, 16th. Not bad at all. So they did well for what they had. But I don't think it was ever really destined to be establishing itself as a as a long-term F1 team. It did do well to kind of move out of that Pacific and 40 territory at the start of that season. But I think as well, a lot of the upper midfield fell backwards towards it in early 95 too. Minardi was particularly short on money and had disruption with changing its engine supply. Um, Arrows had Inouye in one car. Sauber had the not really recovered Carl Wendlinger in one car. So a lot of the teams you'd expect to be quite a way ahead of Simtech for various reasons were dropping back towards it. But Staffan was a great driver as well, a limited driver, but very fast. So that did flatter it. I, it's one of those stories, not quite Montoya level, but in my heart, I think of Simtech as a great lost team because it had the emotional 94 story and it was purple. But when you look at it kind of uh, pragmatically and look at the results and look at what everyone else was doing, nah. Well, the cars did look cool. They did look good. And it, it's a fun team. It, it would have been nice had it been given a fairer crack of the whip. I think we can certainly say that. Ultimately, though, what this just proves is another F1 team needs to paint a car purple. The Williams aren't far off this year there's a strong simtech vibe it's, it's simtechy yeah. isn't it but it's not so uh, yeah can't ask for too there. much matt come on uh the next question is a fun one from uh ewan marshall so you can both had a go at this one matt you can go first ewan asks of all of the circuits which dropped off the f1 calendar in the v10 era which ones would you like to, which one would you like to see return the most or which do you miss the most and why adelaide 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely, no doubt. Um, it okay. Probably wasn't a great, great driver circuit, but dusty, tight, massive curbs. It was fun, and stuff always happened in Adelaide. I don't think there was actually a dull race there by any objective measure. Yeah, I, I missed it in 96. I still miss it now. I like Melbourne. Actually, a lot of people criticise Melbourne as being processional, but I think Melbourne's got a nice sort of vibe and, and a bit of jeopardy about it as well. But it's not Adelaide. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think uh, Melbourne's a really nice kind of flowing circuit, challenging. The racing isn't always great. Although we've got a revised layout to check out when uh, F1 finally races there again. What about you, Ed? Uh, which track do you miss the most from this era? I've just got to add in Adelaide that it was also a mega event as well. I didn't go there for F1, but I went there for supercars just for my own amusement before the Australian Grand Prix one year. And it's just mega small city, real proper event vibe. It's a bit like the Mon in the way it takes over the city. But anyway, uh, I'm going to choose one for a slightly different reason. I'm going to choose Hockenheim. Now, Hockenheim actually was quite a derided circuit at times, basically because it wasn't the Nürburgring Nordschleife. But... What it offered was something very distinctive and unique, those long straights, the, the, the dash into the forests, the chicanes, and some pretty interesting races and storylines. I like the fact that it was extreme in terms of the performance demands of the car. A low-drag, powerful car could do well. We got some strange results there, some great battles. So while it wasn't a great driver's circuit or anything, it was a very specific challenge, and that's what I like, variety of circuits that just create different things. So I'd love... F1 to have a track like that to go back to. Obviously, Hockenheim has held F1 relatively recently, but in its truncated form. And it, really, it's just another circuit now. But back then, it was this ridiculous circuit. Many, many reasons why the circuit wasn't really viable and had to change. But I, I do genuinely miss it because it was just something completely unique, standalone, and glorious. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pitch one in here as well. Um, for me, um, it wouldn't be practical to bring it back now, but mine would be Estoril. I loved Estoril in its, its original f form. You go back and watch racing from there now, and, and it looks tiny. It looks narrow. I'm not sure the current huge era of F1 cars would even fit on it, really. But I loved the, the kind of mix of tight corners and, and the fast the fast first two corners, the fast final corner. Um, obviously, I had that rubbish chicane, a hairpin thing towards the end, but, you know, safety. Uh, if you look at the old corner, we'd just that that replaced with the barrier on the outside. You can see why they had to change it. The track was updated um, after it fell off the F1 calendar. It was supposed to host the final race of 1997. How different might that finale have been if it had been at Estoril as intended instead of Jerez? Who knows? Uh, obviously, the championship would have been decided by Villeneuve driving around the outside of Schumacher on the final corner instead of a collision at Drysack. Um <laughs> But I think there's even there was even good race. I saw a good DTM race at the new track with a tight first corner. MotoGP had possibly its greatest ever race on that layout in 2006. Um, so yeah, I, I loved Estoril at the time. I'm not sure it'd be practical now, but a, a cool track. And uh, from what I hear, it was a fun place to go as well. And next question is from Callum Rowe. And I know this is a subject Ed will approve of. So, Ed, you can ask it because Callum, you can answer it. Callum asks, whose brilliant idea was it to sub Felipe Massa out of Sauber to make way for Heinz Harold Frentzen when Massa had picked up a grid penalty? So, Ed, this was, I think, am I right in thinking this was the first 10 place grid penalty in F1 history towards the end of 2002? Yeah, it certainly was. They introduced that 
rule in 2002. It's quite controversial, actually, but it took something like 15 races before somebody managed to get themselves one. And that was indeed Felipe Massa, who moved over on Pedro de la Rosa's Jaguar while they were battling at Monza. So Massa had a 10-place grid penalty for the next race at Indianapolis. And Sauber were a bit concerned. They were fifth in the Constructors' Championship, but there was this really tight pack of about four teams. So big financial rewards. They could easily have been shuffled back to ninth in the uh, in the pecking order, which would have been problematic, and just two races to go at that stage. So, yeah, Sauber decided to, to bench Massa, bring in Heitzel Frentz, and he was under contract for next year. Out of a drive as Arrows had fallen apart, so obvious choice, even though he didn't entirely fit in the car. Finished 13th, qualified 11th, so he did pretty well, but didn't get any points. But it was all down to the fact that the penalty, the wording of it, said it will be applied at the next race, not the driver's next race, the penalty wasn't applied to the team's car or anything. So if Massa was not at Indianapolis or not racing at Indianapolis, that 10-place grid penalty vanished into the ether. So it was a very, very good idea. And, yeah, I think they were quite bold to uh, to do it. There was a little bit of argument with the FIA about whether they really meant that to happen, but that's what the rule said. So coming back to the key point of the question, whose idea was it? I can answer that. The final say, of course, was the team boss, Peter Sauber. But the person who conceived it and realised it was possible was actually team manager Beat Zender. Perhaps no surprise, he's a shrewd operator. He's still there today as sporting director, but he was the one who looked at the rules, realised they could take Massa out of the car, put a proven driver who knew the team, albeit a very old, who was coming in next year in Heinz-Hald-Frentzen and effectively make the penalty <laughs> disappear, which was a very, very clever little idea it led to a rule change of course so the following year the wording said it will be applied at the driver's next event so even if you're not there the next race you carry it with you so yeah just a good little bit of opportunism whether that had been noted by Bert Zender at the start when the rules were there or just when he looked at it he realized oh hang on a minute there's a way around this we don't know but yeah uh, looked into it and it was he who came up with, it was him who came up with the original idea. Brilliant bit of uh, F1 loophole spotting and another fine example, I guess, of uh, an FIA rule in its original form being written terribly. Paul Mitchell has another question I think we can all answer. So Matt, we'll come to you first. Paul wants to know who we think made up the fastest driver pairing from the V10 era. And Paul says uh, they weren't teammates for very long, but surely you can't look past Senna and Hakkinen at McLaren at the end of 93. And Paul reckons that might be the fastest pairing from any era. But uh, Matt, uh, what would you put forward from the V10 days? I think Paul is probably right. I don't think you can make a really compelling case that he's wrong, to be honest. But Unfortunately, you I, have to. I'm going to, don't worry. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to what we talked about earlier, uh, Raikkonen and Montoya at McLaren, because it should have been the fastest of the era. If you put those two separately or in a different environment, and in terms of raw one lap speed and race racing ability and everything they're they're both incredible drivers i think those two in a team run by a team boss with maybe toto wolf's approach or at the other end of the scale frank williams approach wolf would have made it work and made those two both shine williams would have just gone don't really care i just want you two to both go really really fast um but no those two in a mclaren in that era in a ron dennis run team was bad news for montoya's talent actually being expressed but in, in terms of pure lap time right the montoya faster than any other pairing ever yeah that would have been uh, that would have been my choice as well ed have you got uh, have you got a variation on that for us just that it's a rather boring one in many ways but i think it's worth throwing in senna and prost now 
the phrase there was the, was the, the fastest. And I, and I think probably by that you mean fastest over a lap. But I think in Senna and Prost, you've got, in terms of the complementary skills of the driver, on track, forget off track, we talked about that at length, about how that didn't really work. But you've got two drivers there who can deploy the ultimate speed in any possible range of conditions wet dry single lap pacing qualifying for Senna Prost and like we talked about in our Mexico episode over a, a race distance so I think you've got them all covered there it's perhaps not quite in the spirit of the, the question but perhaps it's part of my desire to rehabilitate the impression of Prost as more than just a slow driver who was clever but actually someone who's very very quick just in a, a certain way. Andy Villa GB has a fun question, I, and I imagine there are multiple ways to interpret this. So, Matt, I'm, I'm interested to see which route you've gone down. Andy asks, which car in the V10 era outperformed its overall speed the most? So effectively finishing higher in the standings than the outright speed of the car merited. And to flip the question, which car underperformed the most? So what's your approach here, Matt? I've followed Andy's request and gone for constructors results versus speed of car. I could have interpreted it as which drivers wasted their car speed the most, in which case you'd probably look 95 Williams or 96 Benetton for that. But um, going straight for which car finished higher or lower up the standings that really should have done. Ligier finishing sixth in 1994 based entirely off one result is my nomination for that. You know, Ligier finishing sixth in the championship in this era shouldn't feel like an anomaly. That's, that's pretty much where Ligier was for a lot of the 90s. But um, with Olivia Panis and Eric Bernard, it spent so much of 94 massively at the back, actually sometimes barely above the kind of embarrassment group that um, was heading towards kind of, well, not, not quite Simtech Pacific territory, but certainly not kind of anywhere near like podium contention on a normal day. And then the events of Hockenheim 94 and that Hakkinen-inspired crash that wiped out about a dozen cars in, in total in the end um, gave them a chance for a double podium. Now that probably... Some probably Ligier's actual speed that season was somewhere in between its most embarrassing backmarker times and that double podium because it wasn't a terrible car, it was just you know, not Ligier's finest and it's it had a very inexperienced panis in the car at that point. Um, going in the other direction, uh, teams that should have finished much higher, I couldn't, I'd love to have found a really kind of uh, grotesque car finishing 10th that should have been second, but there just there wasn't one of those. Closest I can offer is um, Jordan being as low as sixth in 2000. Um, after its uh, near title chasing antics the year before that was largely through poor reliability you know that was still a it wasn't as good a car as the year before and it had been caught out by um, the way F1 was moving to more of a big spending manufacturer era at that point um, it was unreliability and some lackluster race pace performances from both Trulli and Frentzen that cost it. it certainly should have scored more than it did my other contender for a team finishing lower than it should have done um does anyone else find it shocking to think McLaren was only fourth in the 1997 constructors, given how quick that car was and not just how many races it did win, which was three, but how many it could have won if it had blown up fewer times, which I guess answers the question of why it was so far so far down. But, you know, on its best days, that car was making um, Ferrari and Williams you know, look a bit lacklustre. So, you know, I don't think it should have won that year's constructors, but it should certainly have been well clear of third-placed Benetton. And obviously the following year, McLaren got everything together and, and um, ran away with things, um, bar Schumacher's best efforts to make a fight of it. Yeah, that's a good that's a good observation about McLaren, actually. I think uh, Ed and I combined, actually, to do a feature on the 98 car for the Autosport's 60th anniversary issue back in 2010. And obviously you talk to some people about that car and it's all Adrian Newey was a genius who came in and transformed McLaren but I think some people at McLaren 
and Adrian would probably admit this as well, would admit that actually the 97 car was very good. I think Martin Whitmarsh is one of the people who says, actually, we'd made quite a good step already. And yeah, there were a lot of races. McLaren, I think McLaren arguably could have quite easily doubled its victory tally if uh, if it hadn't kept blowing up in the in the second half of the season. So that, considering that was the car that brought McLaren back to winning ways, it's interesting to think that it finished fourth in the standings and, and couldn't even defeat uh, a slightly underwhelming Benetton. It's just worth throwing in one as well in terms of a single piece of overachievement. It wasn't really reflected in the Constructors' Championship positions because it made no difference. But in 2003, the Jordan EJ13 winning a race with Giancarlo Fisichella and Interlagos under the watch of Gary Anderson, of course, of, of, of the race, that's probably about the most off-the-base car to win a Grand Prix, it's certainly in terms of its place in the competitive order. It was not a good car by any stretch of the imagination. Well, that wasn't too bad that weekend, but on average over the season, it was way off. So that's that's kind of the single most overachieving one-off result. It just goes that one bit further than the Ligier second and third that Matt quite rightly mentioned. So I think it's worth a mention in this context, though slightly different interpretation of the question. Yeah, there was no injustice about where that uh, car spent the rest of the season or ended in the Constructors' Championship. Uh, the next question, uh, I suspect you'll both have answers for this. So, uh, Matt, we'll come to you first. Fergus Butler says, who would you regard as the best of the glut of Japanese drivers during the V10 era and slightly before? Uh, and <laughs> the likes of uh, Suzuki, Inui, Katayama, etc. Matt, I can't imagine Inui is about to feature in any further part of this discussion. Nope. That's him done. Let's move on. Um, well, I think you'd have to say Sato, but I'm not going to, just to be slightly contentious. Um, I think it should have been Katayama, if anyone could ever have figured out how to make him rediscover that 1994 magic consistently there was an incredible driver in there okay the the Tyrrell was good and Katayama not weighing much was helpful as well that those those things are both are both true and for a lot of the rest of his F1 career he did look hopeless and I, I can't argue with that either but he was so good at times in 94 and the way he the way he raced the one lap speed he had the the boldness of his approach you know he should have been on the podium a couple of times if and and it was more reliability problems that stopped that happening than than anything else now people at Tyrrell said that one of his big flaws was if there was a problem with the car he just ragged it harder and made no attempts to get to grips with it properly or understand what was going on you know that's obviously a massive weakness for an F1 driver but in the context of this question i sort of don't care Basically, there was there was enough ability in Katayama that if somebody, I'm not saying Tyrrell tried and failed, because I think it might have been impossible to succeed in this quest, uh, if, if somebody could have found the key to making Katayama deliver that 1994 form and channel that kind of improvisational skill into something more more reliable, yeah, Grand Prix winner there, I've just declared slightly boldly. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny sequence of Japanese drivers in this period, because there's a lot that were capable of some very good performances, but struggled on consistency. I don't think we got a, a Japanese driver who was really delivering the consistency until Kobayashi came in outside of this era, and he was a very consistent uh, performer. But I, I do have to kind of disagree a little bit with Matt in that I think you do have to say Sato, just because the peaks were so good. He did do some, uh, some, some great things. Obviously, compared to Button at BAR, he was a bit disappointing, particularly 
2005 season, right at the end of this period, he uh, he struggled, and that first season with Jordan was difficult. But but there were there were points where Sato really got it together. He was a very very quick racing driver. You, you'd have to say. But yeah, just just couldn't achieve that uh, that consistency. But even some of the other ones, Guri Suzuki had his moments. He had some very uncompetitive moments, some very very competitive moments. And yeah, it's true. Katayama had good displays at times as well. But there was a, there were a lot of times when he he struggled as well. So it's a it was a frustrating time because everyone really wanted to see a really good strong competitive Japanese driver, and we we kept having these moments where there was almost breakthroughs, but didn't quite come to come to fruition i think i end up kind of downgrading sato a little bit just because he he didn't live up to the hopes that his junior career suggested you know he came when he came into f1 we were all thinking this is going to be brilliant to watch this is like a, a japanese montoya potentially coming in and it just it just didn't happen you know it wasn't just that the peaks were were inconsistent often he was just just too much slower than teammates as well and that that explosive raw speed you you expected to be there just just wasn't but i think it's slightly unfair in that everything Katayama did in his early F1 year suggested he was going to be rubbish and then suddenly he was brilliant. So that's what sticks in my mind. Whereas um, everything Sato did before F1 suggested he was going to be brilliant and then he was merely quite good. Yeah, I think probably Sato suffered a little bit because he was such a late starter in racing. I don't think he started even in karting properly until he was 18, 19 off the top of my head. So I think that lack of grounding, we do see quite a few drivers during this period. They're starting to suffer more than in in preceding years, particularly later on in the in the bring back v10s era the, the the lack of that body of work early on does start to hurt them and i think probably that was something that counted against uh, sato from realizing the potential that, that was in that my overriding memory of katiyama was always that his head seemed to bounce around a lot in in the car i don't know if he had weak neck muscles or he didn't do his belts up properly but i saw some footage of him uh driving last night actually and uh I thought, oh yeah, I his head, even uh, it was in his uh, Larousse days. It was like even then, his head was always bouncing around in the car. No idea if anyone else has ever noticed that and thought that. Let's move on, because next up we have a couple of Flavio Briatore related engine contract questions. So we'll start with the one that's come in from Craig Colley. Ed Craig says. Minardi were originally planning on using the Mugen Honda V10s for 1995 and even designed their car for it before Briatori convinced Mugen to power Ligier instead. Would the Mugens have made a difference to Minardi's 1995 fortunes and maybe beyond? And how would Ligier have fared given 1995 was their highest points haul for almost a decade? Yeah, well, certainly Mugen Honda engines were a very decent deal for uh, Minardi. Originally, that Mugen Honda supply was the continuation Honda V10s that McLaren had so footwork had those at, at first but then they they really start to ramp up a development effort which they were starting to do in this period so yeah you would think that a Minardi powered by that could have done pretty well and the engine was wasn't market leading by any stretch of the imagination but it was it was pretty uh, decent so yeah they instead they had this hastily designed Minardi M195 under Aldo Costa was technical director there at the time actually it, now there's sort of a a little bit here in terms of answering the question about what they could have achieved that's almost answered by what did happen insofar as there were also some reasons why they lost the Mugen Honda deal that were beyond Fabio Briatore wanting it for, for Ligier, if we put it that way. Now, it was very contentious. Minardi took legal action. They initially got a win, but without any great damages because there were 
sort of hints in the verdict about some uh, some ongoing problems. I'm not sure Minardi had got that far with the design of its car, and I think there were some concerns on the on the Honda side and the Mugen side that Minardi wasn't quite as well equipped as they thought it was. And of course, of course Minardi was a minnow uh, team. Ultimately, there was some compensation paid. It ended up all being caught up as well in terms of the payments with some separate legal action that's between Minardi and a Briatori owned company that I think Briatori had launched. So I think it cancelled out some other payment there. I think the upshot was the value was $1.5, $1.8 million. A large amount apparently Honda covered, which is, I think, quite significant. It's a great notion that a Mugen Honda powered Minardi would have pushed it up the grid and it would have been stronger than the 4DD customer engine they had but it was still a minnow team and I think it would probably have been a year of doing perhaps slightly better than they did but nothing extraordinary I think they'd have lost the engine anyway and the fact that Honda was willing to be connected to anything that could be interpreted as breaking a contract I think is quite revealing I think it was it already had concerns and I think there were areas where Minardi wasn't doing everything it should have been doing probably because it couldn't so yeah, they were very willing in the end to, to move to Ligier. So, yeah, Ligier obviously were in, uh, in in dire need of an engine. <laughs> so, it's quite hard to say what they would have what they would have done that year if they didn't have the Mugen Honda engine. Certainly, it would have been worse because the available options would have been less good. So, I think it would have been a, 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 a team that was much much worse off. So, probably a good move from Ligier and um, and Briatore in particular to trigger that happening. Yeah, and we'll stick with a question that's that's linked to this whole scenario, really, because David Moore says, I've always been intrigued how Benetton secured Renault Works engines for 95. I know Flav bought Ligier, but how did he transfer the engines? I seem to recall that the Ligier engines were always a step behind Williams, uh, the Renault engines, that is. Did Benetton have parity with Williams? So, Ed, this is, this is why Ligier had to steal those, those Mugen engines, because kind of at the last minute, their their Renault supply that they'd enjoyed for a few years by this point was off to Benetton. Yeah, all part of the same chain of events, uh, you could call it. Ultimately, when there's anything like this, you need several parties to, to agree, don't you? You need the team that's going to get the engines to agree. Obviously, Benetton wanted the Renault engines. Why wouldn't you? They were the market-leading engines, so that's that box ticked. You need the team that's going to lose the engines to agree. Well, that's Ligier. Flavio Briatore owns that, so they're fine, provided they can get the the moves elsewhere to, to make things happen. So that's two parties satisfied. You need any contractual obligations to other partner teams, i.e. Williams, to not prevent it. Williams, I think, hoped that it could prevent be prevented, but it turned out it could not be prevented. So that's three parties satisfied. And the other one is Renault has to be willing. The change of ownership of Ligier was significant because a lot of the, the French kind of national pressure we've talked about a number of times was slightly reduced by the fact that the team was now owned by Briatori because there were there were connections between Guy Ligier and the and the government and so on and so forth so that meant there was wasn't any of that wider pressure on Renault to stay and Renault themselves were were sold by Benetton on the idea of being associated with that team as a reigning world champion team drivers championship wise and particularly with Michael Schumacher so Renault agreed so Everybody in the end was happy. So really it was Flavio Briatori who was at the heart of this game of chess, if you can indeed say someone's at the heart of a game. He certainly had the full overview and got all the pieces in place and made sure it happened. It was an inspired move. Not ideal for Minardi, as we discussed in the previous question, but effectively achieved the impossible. And say what you like about Flavio Briatori, he certainly knew how to make a deal to his advantage happen. And 
of course, the 95 season was a, a triumph for Benetton. Yeah, and on the subject of parity, I think as well as Williams thinking they could block the deal, which turned out not to be true, I think they then had a hope that they could prevent parity. But as Ed's outlined there, it was in Renault's interests to have Michael Schumacher and Benetton using using the top equipment. So I think it's fair to say as well, they weren't that bothered about whether Ligier had parity or not. So I doubt they paid too much attention to any terms <laughs> in any contracts that moved there because Ligier ultimately was serial underperformers at this period. Yeah, Williams weren't exactly holding Ligier back by uh, waving some sort of Renault exclusivity contract over them. For our final question, we've got one that I think sums up Bring Back V10s and what's great about our audience. And uh, we'll definitely let you both answer this one. Matt Baker says, if you could choose any lower midfield to backmark a team from the V10 era and give it a cash injection of, say, £250 million to make it great, who would you choose and why? Now, we've just been talking about Minardi, and you might think, well, this is a this is just going to be more chat about Minardi. But Matt Baker chose Minardi, saying, I'd have to go with Minardi, proper plucky team who I've always had a soft spot for. And who who here hasn't had a soft spot? for Minardi so I think it's great to take Minardi off the table Matt you can't have them where are you going instead Pacific wow yeah well partly for philosophical reasons because I feel one of the things that I felt was sad about the 90s was the kind of cutting of the connection between the concept of you can be good at running a team in lower formula and you can graduate to F1 as a team as well as as a driver and okay not lots of the greatest F1 teams didn't come up that way but you know Williams headed in that direction McLaren in a way you know Ron Dennis proved himself at Project 4 and got brought into to McLaren as a result and Benetton's roots were in Tolman so there was a tradition that you could you know as an aspiring team boss engineer constructor whatever cut your teeth lower down move up you know Pacific won championships in Formula Ford it won British Formula 3 with JJ Leto it won Formula 3000 with Christian Fittipaldi it was a 1993 F3000 race winner with David Coulthard and then it was an absolute embarrassment in Formula One. Now, there were some some of the choices it made weren't great along the way. It, it was it was its design concept was very caught up in trying to use the aborted Reynard project and not being able to fully do that. And it was a bit of an unsuccessful mishmash. And it had very 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 little money. It, even in '95, its better season, it was rationing its mileage to make sure it could pay its bills quite heavily. And then having to bring in some some truly awful pay drivers, nevertheless. Um, it ended up kind of merged with Lotus, but that merger kind of didn't really go beyond tacking the Lotus name onto its entry in case anyone fancied sponsoring Lotus. It wasn't, wasn't like there was any kind of assets or money came along. So it was, you know, in F1 terms, it looks like an absolute shambles. But up until the moment it gets to F1, it looks like a, a really well-run racing team. And I think that's that's the thing that I, I could pick a few other teams in that position as examples. But Pacific just feels like one of the most glaring examples of this is the point where you could work your way up through ingenuity and then you got near F1 as a team and it was you were going to be an absolute embarrassment unless you had a ton of money. So you may as well, if you're an aspiring engineer or team boss, quit your junior team and hook up with a manufacturer in F1 and start at the bottom again. And I think that's a, that's a sad thing. So, yeah, I um, purely as a kind of thought experiment, I wish someone had given Keith Wiggins £250 million at the start of 1994 and gone, there you go. Go and uh, go and see what you can do in F1. Well, I didn't see that coming uh, as our uh, in, in in these answers. But Ed, you must be absolutely spoilt for choice here. So, who on earth have you picked, and is it Larousse? <laughs> well, in an ideal world, they'd all 
the, all those struggling small teams that went <laughs> to the wall will be given that just to see who comes out best. Of course, I imagine LaRousse would have gone uh, gone quite well. Certainly, they'd have lasted a little bit uh, longer. But actually, I'm going to choose, and it's probably a little bit predictable because I've answered questions on this team before. I, I'd go the Leighton House team because I just think it would have been fascinating to see what happened, what would have happened had the Adrian Newey project been, a late, been, been able to play out. So he had the right aero ideas. Those aero ideas went on to shape F1 and obviously created the FW14B Williams aero principle. He was pushing on technologies, on active suspension, etc. He really had all the objectives right for what Formula 1 would be. He could see what the future was. So were he to have that investment and the team building up around him, it would have been really interesting to see what would have gone on. Now, there would be weak points in that he was still relatively inexperienced, obviously, it's quite famous how uncompromising he was on packaging, especially when it came to drivers. So he started a bit to learn. He may have needed a little bit of a, a calming presence, shall we say, to avoid his more extravagant flights of fancy, shall we say. But wouldn't it have been fantastic to see how that would have gone for four or five years with real investment? Could that team have established itself as a consistent front runner? Who knows? With that level of investment, if you're talking about 250 million, perhaps it could have done and perhaps that team could still be there today being successful. Or who knows? Perhaps it, it was just that little bit too early for Adrian Newey and actually the milieu he was in of this Minnow team was, was the, the right way to go and he needed to go through that process of, of, of curing in, in Williams, if you like, to be ready to be the genius designer he was working with Patrick Head. But I think it would be fascinating to see what would have happened there because... That team, it was the little team that could. They overachieved more than anyone of those small teams. They were a, a very, very small team. They damn near won the French Grand Prix with Ivan Capelli, as we've discussed. So let's see how that plays out. Let's see what Newey can do and how it shifts what happens in, in the future. Because it has the potential to profoundly change the course of F1. The biggest potential change just by rewriting history and dropping in some money or maybe it would all just have been thrown away and would have been a fascinating technical exercise and he'd have ended up having to jump ship and knew he would have ended up at a Williams later on anyway who knows see I disqualified Leighton House for my considerations on the grounds that the question was lower midfield to back marker and to me Leighton House was was too good um to to qualify. So would you have to wait for them to go rubbish and yeah. then give them the money? Yeah, completely. It, it'd have to. <laughs> well, I, I just decided. I just decided to check because I, I thought the last the last episode I was on was the Mexican Grand Prix. They didn't qualify for that one. For that, but yeah, yeah, I, I may have slightly distorted the question uh, a little bit there, but I think it probably says a lot about <laughs> that team of how I see it. In that it is a lower midfield back market team, but it just gargantuanly overachieved and. Yeah, you're right. The fact they did get some podiums probably disqualifies them from being that. But I do see them as that. So, um, yeah, they're my rules. <laughs> that's uh, that's all I can say. Well, we, we break plenty of rules here on Bring Back V10s. The, the more popular the show gets, the more people I get messaging me every single week when we do an episode that's not focused on a V10-powered car. And uh, people constantly feel the need to remind me uh, which cars had uh, V8s and V12s. We are aware we're celebrating uh, the era, of course. Um, much like Ed, uh, well, I think we can allow Leighton House to have the investment perhaps in 1989 because that car was rubbish as well. Um, and certainly by 91 and, and 92 when it was back to March, uh, they were they were in big trouble. I, I would submit a couple of perhaps 
not in the spirit of the question answers as well. One one I thought about was um, giving Jordan the money for 1992 because they were rubbish in 92. And that, that was because they'd spent too much money in 91. So if you could if you could cheat a bit and say to Eddie Jordan at the end of 91, here's a load of cash. Be very interested to see what the trajectory of that team would have looked like through the first half of the 90s before sponsorship money and Peugeot engines and that sort of thing helped Jordan become what it did. Matt mentioned Lotus. Lotus, by the end, um, in many ways, was a, a race team that was just running completely on its last legs and and being stripped bare by the end. We, we have, we've, of course, have talked about the end of Lotus in great detail with Johnny Herbert. What might have happened if you'd thrown a load of money at that team at that point? The counter-argument to that is they had really good sponsorship money um, at the kind of the turn of the 80s into the 90s and were still in decline then anyway, and that's why the sponsors left. So that's the beauty of this is you could just do what Matt did, pick an absolute backmarker and say, here's the money, what can you do with it? Or uh, you can completely bend the rules like Ed and I have tried. And Ed's got his hand up again. So this is where he names the other 10 teams he'd give the money to. <laughs> well, it, it's only really one name, but actually it is about 10 teams, as we've learned over the past years on Ring Back V10s. Why not just give it to Alan Prost for one of his <laughs> many alliances with Ligier, French super team, startup teams. Let him do it properly and see what happens. You can pick just about anyone from about 1989 all the way through, if you like. So there's lots of possibilities there that always sounded great on paper. I'm, I'm sure they would have worked a treat. I'm sure they'd have gone exactly like the actual Prost Grand Prix team did and uh, would have, it would have just gone wrong for whatever reason because I think it it was doomed. But I don't... I can't imagine money would have been the problem if any of those projects had got off the ground. Uh, Alan always seemed convinced that he had big partners who wanted to get involved. Maybe they just needed Team Bring Back V10s with our huge checkbook provided by Matt Baker to uh, to convince Marlborough, Canal Plus and all the other French companies to, to jump in. But let's leave it there for part one of our series finale before this descends into total madness. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Thanks to Matt and Ed, as always, for helping us pile through as many as we can. Remember, if you're part of the Race Members Club, keep an eye on your inbox for the chance to ask questions for an exclusive bonus episode that will be released a few weeks after the end of series five. And if you want to be a part of that, you still can. The window will remain open for a bit longer. So you can sign up by going to the-race.com forward slash members club. There's one more regular episode left in the series then. And we've got another massive pile of questions to get through to see out series five in style. The Athletic.